0: I'm Mariana Vieira.
1: And I'm Ben Horton, and you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House.
0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Undercurrents. I'm in the not so cold media studio today, joined by Ben. Hello,
1: Mariana. It's so nice to be in person doing an introduction after ages. I don't know. It just feels like we've not really done one of these at the start of the podcast for a long time.
0: That's very true.
1: You sound thrilled. You sound absolutely (laughs) absolutely delighted. I wonder, like, maybe we should just go back to it. Like, I'll I'll see you You upstairs (laughs) on Zoom and we can just do this, like, you know.
0: No, no, Ben, that's not true. I am thrilled (laughs) to be in the room with you. And I am even more thrilled to be talking on such a special day because it is International Women's Day today which is a nice segue for you to maybe ask me what my interview is about.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's happy International Women's Day, Mariana. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's something that we say on, <laughs> on this day. I know that there's some really interesting stuff going on at Chatham House mm-hmm. as we record it this afternoon. Um, obviously, by the time this episode actually airs, all of those events will have taken place, but there will be videos that we will link to in the show notes. But Mariana, your interview is pretty appropriate, for this occasion, I would say. Who did you speak
0: to this week? So I would say my interview was made uh, for this week. So I spoke to (laughs) Marissa Conway, who co-founded the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy, a research and advocacy charity based in London. Marissa is also the cover story author for the recent issue of The World Today. She writes about how governments have been engaging with feminist foreign policy And then her story is accompanied by two other articles on case studies, such as Sweden, uh, which, you know, was the first country to officially have a feminist foreign policy, and Mexico. As for the interview you're about to listen to, Marissa and I touched upon some of the questions that she raised in her article, mainly issues around inclusivity within feminist foreign policy and how these academic debates have translated into foreign policy priorities.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. And it really is something that seems to be picking up momentum at the moment, right? This whole kind of feminist foreign policy movement. I mean, Mm. it's not like a brand new thing. It's been around for a while, but it seems that more and more governments are waking up to this and thinking about how to apply it.
0: Absolutely. And there's, that's something that we talk about. There's quite a bit of a debate or this wave of considering feminist foreign policy as being ripe for the times. Mm. And we do discuss that also in context of, without spoiling it too much, but the rise of populism and these leaders that actually have these hard power displays that are much more aligned with uh, traditionally patriarchal values. So it's, it's quite interesting. But enough about that. Ben, tell me, who did you speak to?
1: Yeah, so I think actually my interview complements this one pretty well. It's with Tom Fletcher, who is currently the principal of Hartford College, Oxford. But he also previously was the UK ambassador to Lebanon and also a foreign policy advisor to three UK prime ministers. And he has written a really interesting book, which is thinking about how we equip the next generation with the sorts of skills that they're going to need to Mm. survive to adapt to be resilient in this kind of age of constant crisis and change that we seem to be living through in the 21st century so I won't go too much into sort of what we actually talked about there but Mm. it really was fascinating and, and a really interesting take on how education systems need to reform in order to deliver these skills
0: sounds interesting shall we have a listen
1: let's have a listen
0: Now I'm joined by Marissa Conway, the co-founder for the Center of Feminist Foreign Policy and most importantly, or perhaps more relevant for me, the cover story uh, writer for the World Today magazine's latest issue. Hi, Marissa, Thank you so much for being here today. How are you?
2: Hello, thank you. It's a miserable day outside, but it otherwise is. I'm very happy to be here. Well, our listeners do know that our media
0: studio tends to get a bit cold, <laughs> so there is no need to sell any other lies. <laughs> a little chilly inside right. too, but cozy. Cozy, yeah, okay. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll go with that. And I think, uh, although we're speaking ahead of International Women's Day that is celebrated on March 8th, uh, our listeners will be, will be sort of tuning into this a bit later on. So it is in the spirit that we're having at this conversation and I think before we get into the wonderful and lucid cover story that you wrote for, for the magazine, I want us to set the tone for this conversation. And by us, I really mean you. Uh, so my first question to kick us off is, what what is feminist foreign policy and what
2: does it mean to you? I think those are two very interesting distinctions in defining feminist foreign policy. Feminist foreign policy, as it is known commonly and as countries are developing it, is a policy framework that focuses on how we can better support the rights of women and girls. Um, This is kind of the standard way that countries are engaging with this particular framework. I personally would define it a little bit differently and have a more holistic approach, I think, as to what I would like to see from a feminist foreign policy framework. So rather than just to focus on women and girls, it looks at Equality in general and how everyone can benefit from equality, and takes a very intersectional approach with that, meaning that we're not just looking at gender, but we're also looking at race and class and disability, how all these different social categories interact to either give someone access to power or prevent them from accessing power. And so, what I want to see out of a feminist foreign policy is a framework that doesn't just focus on addressing the symptoms of inequality, but really gets to the root causes of it and addresses it from a systemic perspective. Absolutely.
0: And you touched upon the the key cornerstone of international relations, that being power and access to it. I think this is a very recurring question whenever we encounter feminist foreign policy as a, as a school of thought or as a framework. And it is to ask, what would they prescribe uh, in certain situations when it comes to uh, key issues on the international affairs agenda? how does it How does this relationship to power play out, and what does feminist foreign policy have to say about for instance, climate change or the Russia crisis, as we're calling it
2: so by using a feminist approach to foreign policy and kind of having that word first, feminist foreign policy to me that indicates a grounding in the needs of particularly marginalized people, but people in general. So there's definitely a correlation with human security approaches to understanding what foreign policy is for, who it is for, what it should be doing, who is the subject of foreign policy. And so very quickly... You get away from discussing, you know, conflict between states and you start to understand perhaps conflict between people or the needs and insecurities that are impacting people. And that becomes grounded much more close to home and has to do with housing insecurity, food insecurity, access to education, access to affordable health care. So you kind of very quickly get away from these big picture concepts of militarization or deterrence um, and what safety actually means becomes a very, very different conversation. So I think the interesting thing about feminist foreign policy is that it brings this lens onto any issue. So you can look at the climate crisis, you can look at geopolitical conflict, and it's all about taking this particular perspective, which focuses on the people And particularly the needs of marginalized people who are historically excluded from foreign policy spaces and political spaces and reorient these issues around what these needs are. And all of a sudden the conversation becomes very, very different. Absolutely. And it sounds more like it's not in competition
0: with other theories of ways of understanding or worldviews on international affairs, but rather that it's complementary in the perspective that it brings. I was essentially attending this event on uh, Afghanistan right now, the ongoing, I don't even know if you call it a crisis anymore, but the humanitarian situation. And there was a lot of this urge of shouldn't we intervene and this impetus to use this responsibility to protect language and rhetoric uh, in defense of women and girls. And at first, it sounds very instinctive, and, you're just, and you sort of have this feeling of, of course, we should protect women and girls. It's it's what feminist foreign policy does. But truly, like I was afraid that it was coming across a little bit because the discussion is happening in the West. It was coming across a little bit as a, a white savior complex. Uh, and so, as an expert in feminist foreign
2: policy, what would be the the position that you would take uh, if you were talking to the policymakers? I, I think that's an important issue to be mindful of in this trope of Western nations saving brown women from brown men is wildly problematic and was something seen a lot around 9-11 and mm-hmm. the justification for U.S. intervention, at least. that's I lived in the U.S. at the time. And I think we need to be very, very cautious around these types of justifications That said, the Taliban is in Afghanistan because of US and Western intervention. And I do think that there is a responsibility to be accountable to that and to protect people from keep saying the US. I know there are other countries involved, but I'm hugely critical of how the US has handled this situation. I think the accountability piece is completely missing for me. And so while I am not comfortable with justifications like that, I think there is a huge, huge responsibility to understand that the current situation in Afghanistan is literally due to Western intervention and then Western countries completely abandoning Afghanistan and leaving them to themselves. So it's a very difficult situation. Mm-hmm. There is no easy answer. But I think this kind of washing our hands of Afghanistan mm-hmm. is, is not the answer it's such a, a loose loose uh, mm-hmm. conversation and Completely. i'm i'm confident that if you had the answer to
0: this you would be speaking elsewhere <laughs> <laughs> and and something that I, I keep coming back to which is more of a conceptual question but i also i think it's it's essential sort of to set the scene uh, is this thing that you mentioned in the article about feminism has been virtually a taboo for most of modern history first of all why is that and why is gender or gender equality more palatable And as a third question, why would feminist foreign policy embrace the more controversial, if you will, terminology?
2: Our society is patriarchal, and historically that has meant that the public space has been for men and has been categorized as a masculine space. So in order to occupy that space, you have to also exhibit more masculine characteristics. And that has only really recently changed, I think, because of decades and decades and decades of feminist activism. And we can see the tide slowly turning. I think it did start with gender equality becoming more interesting as a concept to engage with. And we do know that studies show that the level of gender equality in a country does have a direct relationship with a level of peacefulness. So there is actual hard data to back up why this is a good idea, in addition to knowing that, quite simply, it's the right thing to do if we're Making policies and decisions, then we should have representation from society of who is making those decisions. I'm very interested, and I think the cynicism will come in a little here, maybe, Mm -hmm. (laughs) about why now our country is using the label feminist. And I'm kind of of two minds. I do think it's sort of the next step past gender equality, because it's not just looking at One particular issue around equality and have this sort of more narrowed focus is very important, but it's more narrow, I would say, in comparison to feminism because feminism encompasses a whole host of different things. My suspicion is that, in addition to the progress we're making around buy in for feminism, buy in for equality for everybody, and that includes racial equality, class equality these sorts of things. I do also see it as a little bit of a branding exercise. Mm -hmm. And there is a process of virtue signaling to the international Mm -hmm. order where certain countries that want to position themselves as liberal or progressive states will use this terminology Mm -hmm. to indicate to other governments, other people, where they're positioning themselves in terms of their politics. Mm -hmm. I think... This can be helpful if countries follow through with what they say they will do. I am concerned at the moment that it's a lot of talk and not a lot of action. I think Sweden has done a really great job of trying to integrate this throughout its MFA at a really systemic level. I'd like to see their feminist foreign policy go even deeper and focus a little bit more on intersectional approaches, not just on women and girls as the kind of sole category they focus on. But there are a lot of other countries that are really just using the label and haven't done any sort of policy development to back up that usage of the label. And this is what really concerns me is that it's becoming, it risks becoming a branding exercise and not a call to action. And specifically, nothing that will result in systemic change, which for me, that's ultimately what feminism is about. We've also answered one of my other questions, which was going to be on the state of feminist foreign policy.
0: And uh, I really wanted to hear more about how you see states interacting with it, because feminist approaches to international relations are sort of like you have this theoretical level and in academia in sort of the ivory tower. And then you have... The people that are on the ground trying to apply it either to governments, but also if there are any uh, non-state actors or basically people in the real world, quote unquote, that are interacting with this with this approach and are deploying it. How do you see the state or the journey of, and I think this is something you talk about in the article, the journey of feminist foreign
2: policy agendas? I think we're very much in their infancy. We're sort mm-hmm. of like, this is the first step of what it means to incorporate feminism into foreign policy. And I think, you know, this is maybe now where I get a little more optimistic that, of course, it's going to take a while to figure out what this means. We're talking about incorporating an idea that's completely antithetical to how foreign policy has been Mm -hmm. conducted. I think there is a lot of compatibility, to your point earlier, with a feminist approach and a feminist analysis to a lot of other ways to Do IR or think about IR. I think it is quite compatible. But it does take a pretty hard stand against certain things. And I think in some ways is in um, opposition to realism, for example, Mm -hmm. which has just kind of dominated modern foreign policy thinking. But so I I do see there's a lot of tension, but I think there's a lot of potential. Mm -hmm. And this is what excites me. This is what keeps me interested in this work. There's just so much scope for interesting, fascinating things to happen when we bring feminism into foreign policy. So I, despite my concerns and critiques, I am excited to see Mm -hmm. where this goes. And I sincerely, sincerely hope and plan on working towards feminist foreign policy frameworks that are a little more adventurous and take bigger risks. I
0: absolutely want to ask you more about that. I uh, just think before we do that, I wanted to ask about in the article, you talk about how right now, something along the lines of there's a, it's a fertile time to, to be taking advantage of foreign policy or pushing the for, or the feminist foreign policy agenda. Sorry. Uh, and I've read over and over and over about this quote-unquote current window of opportunity for feminist foreign policy which makes me want to ask why now and what do you make of at the same time the rise of populist leaders who thrive on hyper-masculine performances of of foreign policy either the displays of hard power or the the sort of like patriarchal societies that they advance seems to be something in common there so how do you how do, what is your stance on, this, on these two ways in which foreign policy
2: trends could go, essentially? I think it is a very interesting time for feminist foreign policy because if relatively small changes to these frameworks are made now and commitments to action are made now so that it's understood that this isn't just something... Um, This isn't just a label, but invokes a particular set of norms that require particular sets of action. I think we can see some really interesting things happen with foreign policy. I think we can see a transformation across the entire international order as to how foreign policy is conducted and who it's concerned about and how people are impacted by this very intrigued and optimistic, I think. Um, And now is a good time because an increasing number of states are picking up on feminist foreign policy, but they're just talking about the name and the label, and I am not seeing the action coupled with this. So this is where I'm kind of like, okay, we need to have like a A reality check about what this means. You can't just say you have a feminist foreign policy without doing the work to actually implement a feminist foreign policy. So, this is the pattern that kind of worries me at the moment. And I think if states were to kind of hit pause, if feminist foreign policy intrigues them, incredible. This is so amazing. But I think it's very important to kind of take a beat, slow down, figure out what that actually means in their context, talk to local feminists, make sure that consultations with those local feminists, are fully funded, and then go ahead and implement and launch a feminist foreign policy. I do think it's very interesting to see the rise of populism as these feminist frameworks are coming out, and they're obviously in direct contrast with each other. Mm-hmm. I think it's one step forward, two steps back, where I-, I wouldn't necessarily say actors like you know Putin and Trump are acting in response to a feminist foreign policy. Mm. But I think feminism threatens what I suspect is certain aspects of their identity and how they see themselves as leaders. And so I'm sure that's in part fuel for certain behavior and certain actions. I'm not an expert on Russia by any means, but I'm an American, so I can talk for (laughs) ages about Trump (laughs) and my thoughts about him and why he was successful Mm. and maybe why he behaved in certain regards. And I think the increase in equality is certainly seen as a threat by actors like
0: him absolutely and if we could bring you back to this point you were making about implementation of feminist foreign policy agendas, there's this milestone that we constantly refer to and that feminist foreign policy tends to focus on, which is the women in peace women peace and security agenda. Which is uh, seen as—I mean—at the risk of making anyone feel old, it is about 22 years old now. I think it was. The resolution was rectified yeah. or was accepted by the UN Security Council in October 2000. Uh, so oh, it's 22 years <laughs> exactly. Oh, so thinking about like the two decades that we've had since the unanimous resolution was passed. I was reading a bit more about the topic and how a lot of the criticism there's a lot of reasons to celebrate it as it is the first time that the Security Council turns their attention to women in conflict, but also there's a lot of points being raised about that, the fact that it doesn't go far enough, and it has a lot to do with not just the scope of the agenda but also the implementation of it so, as I have you here, I would like to take I would love to take this opportunity to, to ask you how do you feel about this. One of the critiques that comes across the most is this idea that the agenda has furthered the militarized protection of women as victims of of conflict or victims of violence as opposed to political agents. Where do you stand on this? Do you see like there is room for improvement? As in, if you had all the power in the world right now to change the WPS
2: agenda, uh, what would you do in relation to it? So, Women, Peace and Security to me is about inclusion in existing systems. So it's about making sure that women are meaningfully participating in peace-building initiatives and talks. And I think the criticism about not being broad enough in its scope, this is all very reasonable criticism, a lot of which I agree with, but also understanding the way that governments are enacting women, peace, and security agendas, which is primarily through their national action plans. So at this point, I think it's safe to say that most states have a national action plan for implementing women, peace, and security. I can't remember the exact number. But even just this simple, simple mandate to meaningfully include women in peace building is not being met. So I think the agenda itself is very specific Mm -hmm. and perhaps narrow in its focus, yes. But states are not even able to fully implement this one thing. (laughs) And... It baffles me, you know, it's it's not, I don't see it as a very difficult thing to do. And I recognize that there are bureaucratic processes and things in place that can make this challenging. And this is why I also think that systemic change is necessary alongside this inclusion in systems. So something like WPS, where women are being brought into what already exists and it's sort of just there's this common metaphor used about bringing women to the table and mm-hmm. women having a seat at the table. So being at the table is very important. And then the other side of feminism is about smashing this metaphorical table completely and utterly rebuilding it. Mm-hmm. So I think having both of these kinds of goals is really important. Mm-hmm. Because otherwise you get stuck in this perpetual cycle of, okay, here's this one thing we're trying to do. We're just trying to include women in peace building and we can't actually really do that all the way. There are certain aspects we're missing. So I think linking WPS to things like feminist foreign policy, things like arms trade treaty, and making it a more holistic agenda in that sense will help implementation. Yeah, I'm of two minds about it. But now imagine you have all the power in the world to do something about it. So strictly speaking to the WPS agenda, mm-hmm. I would I would put women in charge of conflict mediation mm-hmm. and negotiation, full stop. Not just include them, but have them fundamentally lead every single aspect of it. This isn't to say that women are more inherently peaceful. I think that's kind of a falsehood that is often used to justify things like the WPS agenda. That's not true at all. But For how long have women been ignored now? I think it's fair time that we take the lead. At the risk of something like the devil's
0: advocate, would would women just be helpful because it's time for them to take the lead? Or is there something else inherent to the systems that would bring about change?
2: War is led by men. All wars have been started by men. And again, not to suggest that women wouldn't start wars also, but let's just flip it around and try something different, you know? (laughs) Like, what's the harm, honestly? Like, we know that humans tend to get into conflict and tend to go to wars, Mm. and it's primarily men who are making those decisions. So maybe somebody with a different life experience would be better at the helm. And
0: lastly, I I have a few questions of a more personal nature following your announcement that you'll be stepping away from CFFP, so the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. After six years, if you if you can believe it, so you've been at the forefront of feminist foreign policy in the UK and I would argue in Europe as well. So looking back at your time there, what are some of the challenges that non-state actors have been facing when trying to implement or advance a feminist foreign policy agenda?
2: Funding. Number one is the funding. I think there's a lot of enthusiasm around this and I'm seeing funders increasingly get more excited about funding this particular kind of work, especially kind of peace and security funders. Mm -hmm. But it is it's a very, very difficult landscape. And finding resources to do this work in a civil society setting has been easily the most challenging part about doing quality work on feminist foreign policy. And I think this is becoming a bit of a tradition,
0: but as you remember, or as you might remember, for the first time they did a the QA for the world today. I think back in 2017, if I'm not wrong, you proudly described your participation in this NATO Engages Summit as easily one of the highlights of your career so far. And so I picked this up. Uh, I took the liberty of asking this uh, same question or similar question last time we spoke for the magazine as well, I think last year and around the same time. And at the time, I asked what achievements you would highlight. And you mentioned uh, an interview that you had just done for the BBC on the merits of the integrated review. So, I would very much like to update the record on this. So, I'll ask again should we sit down in five years' time, what achievements would you like to be able to highlight as a step in the right
2: direction? So, at the moment, different political parties in the UK are engaging with the idea of feminist foreign policy. We have the Women's Equality Party pledged to implement a feminist foreign policy. We have Labour, who has their feminist development policy, and they're currently going through an update for the next iteration. And the Scottish National Party recently pledged to implement a feminist foreign policy in their latest manifesto. So I think we're seeing an increase in buy-in across all these different political parties. Um, We even had a Tory Baroness write an article in support of feminist foreign policy recently. So what I would like to see is that this interest is followed through by action by appropriate planning and by appropriate funding to make sure that this can be a reality. And this is something I say to policymakers when I meet with them too, and I think this is the number one thing that civil society tends to critique feminist foreign policy on, is that if these frameworks are presented as the end all be all, we've done feminism now, that's not the right approach. I think it's holding space that this is an agenda that needs to continually be updated Mm -hmm. and refreshed and refined. Because, again, filtering feminism through a very patriarchal space is a difficult thing to do. And things are going to get lost in translation. So recognizing the constraints and creating systems to kind of Understand this and adapt to it, but always working towards a better next iteration of that feminist foreign policy framework. That is what I would like to see. It's such a good answer. And also, like, it brings feminism back to its roots in
0: international relations when, uh, I don't know if you know about this article in, in the International Affairs Journal from uh, Marisia. Zelensky, uh, she, she wrote on, on the Bosnia War and, and then she had an interview to follow up on the article where she talks about feminism is about lingering and it's about like actually like a lot more space for reflection as opposed mm. to reaction mm-hmm. and that it turns out, and this was some of the most inspirational things that I read from from the interview is that Uh, feminism learns more from its failures than it does uh, from its successes. I'm sure it doesn't apply just to feminist theories, but it was such a a good way. And I think it really speaks to the points that you're making about its potential and how it's being it's getting picked up. Well, thank you so much for all those brilliant insights, Marissa. It's been great having you.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me here today. It's been wonderful.
1: All right, so now I'm joined by Tom Fletcher, CMG. Tom is Principal of Hartford College, Oxford, and also the founder of the Foundation for Opportunity. Previously, he was the Foreign Policy Advisor to three UK Prime Ministers between 2007 and 2011. And he was also the UK's Ambassador to Lebanon from 2011 to 2015. Tom, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks
3: so much, Ben. It's great to be back in Chatham House. I launched my first book, The Naked Diplomat. A few feet from where we're doing this podcast, so I'm feeling very nostalgic.
1: (laughs) And the rest is history, right? That's the rest rest is history. I'm delighted, as you know,
3: I'm very delighted that you have the cover of the world today. Uh, hanging in the tea room that, that mentions The Naked Diplomat. So I'm feeling very chuffed today.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we got that out just for the visit today. <laughs> Thank you. But we're here today to talk about your latest book, which is out now, published by HarperCollins, which is titled 10 Survival Skills for a World in Flux. I just wondered whether you could sort of start us off by trying to tell us a bit about the premise of the book. Obviously, the kind of implication there is, you know, a world in flux, the world is changing and we need to develop new skills in in our young people but also i guess in wider society to deal with that change so could you maybe start by summarizing in some way the ways in which you think the world is changing obviously a huge question there
3: well i think this is the, is the new normal you often talk to people and they they hope for a moment where we can just reset the world to how it was 5 years ago or 1989 when everything seemed to be going in our direction or 1947 48 as we were building this sort of new world Order the the structures that would would keep us peaceful for centuries, and the reality is we're just not going to go back to those times. This this state of instability and uncertainty and flux is the new normal. And your listeners will will know all about that. You know, climate change, the next pandemic, the next global economic crisis, instability of which Putin uh, and Ukraine is the current example, but we can look elsewhere: Afghanistan, Yemen. And, and all those new sources of, of conflict in the future. And then, of course, around the next corner, a great wave of climate-driven migration with all the tension that will bring within uh, our own societies. And then, of course, what comes next with tech, uh, the argument that we have to have with big tech about the diplomatic rules to govern technology. Mm. And eventually then, how, how are we going to live alongside artificial intelligence? So, you know, this isn't going to suddenly reset and, and go away, And my concern, having spent two years at NYU working on the curriculum of the future, is that most kids in the world are learning the wrong things in the wrong way to respond to these challenges, to respond to these crises. And I guess that's the story of my journey from Naked Diplomat to this book is this realisation that ultimately education is upstream diplomacy, that we've got to sort out global education in order to prepare ourselves better for dealing with these massive challenges ahead of us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I want to get on to how exactly we reform education systems to really sort of drive those changes. But before we talk about that, I just wonder, could you just clarify for me your sense of, I mean, obviously, you've described these sort of multiple crises. I've, I've seen it described elsewhere as that we're living through an age of perma crisis. And it just seems that, you know, we go from one to the next. But I wanted to know, do you think that that is something that's fundamentally different. That is a different challenge to what previous generations have had to deal with. Or is it some kind of, you know, contemporary sort of narcissism that we would think of ourselves in this kind of unique situation of permanent crisis and flux? And I mean, depending on how you come down on that, what do you think is driving that change in the 21st century? Why is it different now if it is?
3: So I think you're right that there, there's an element of this, of hyper-awareness, of these crises. Mm. The fact that we can doom scroll every morning and that we know more about the war in Ukraine than, than our leaders would have known about the Second World War at the time mm. when they were leading us through it, it is very striking and, and increases that sense of collective anxiety, that this is so much part of the collective conversation, almost a fear of missing out, that if you haven't got the latest Zelensky video or seen the latest atrocity, then somehow you're not on top of the situation. Mm. And that does increase our collective stress. So that's for sure, an element of this. But I think what makes the overlapping crises of the, the 2020s feel different and what's what makes them fundamentally different is the pace at which the world is changing around us. Mm. I think the last comparable period is probably the last comparable technological innovation, the printing press, when there you've got 50 to 100 years of massive upheaval as European society and politics adjusts to this new technology, to this new access to information Look at the internet, and that's the printing press on steroids. Right. And we've been experiencing that in the last decade or two. We've really seen that sense of the world speeding up around us. And so that's the big difference this time, is that we've got less time to adjust to the political, social, economic change that that technological innovation is bringing. And that's why the world does feel so unstable. So you know, it's understandable that people feel that way. It's, you know, this isn't just a, a 21st century narcissism. The world really is
1: a perilous place. So to come on, I suppose, to the real heart of the book, which is about how we kind of deal with this. How, how do we develop a new mindset, a new set of skills to address the way that these challenges affect us as individuals and as society? And you've got 10 skills here. And I don't really want to sort of go itemize them all, all the way through. But you do kind of group them into three different themes, I suppose. But could you maybe just run us through those? What are the key characteristics that we need to really foster?
3: Well, I guess in a way, if The Naked Diplomat was about how do we more technology into the world of diplomacy, yeah. this book is perhaps how do we bring more diplomacy into a world shaped by technology? Because m- many of the skills that I'm describing, people call them 21st century skills, emotional intelligence, empathy, and so on. Some of us call those diplomacy. Some yeah. of us recognise them as classic diplomatic skills. The ability to see someone else's perspective is you know, a core, core skill of the great diplomats. For me... You know, we need to move away from an education system dominated by the head, by knowledge, to one that properly balances head, hand, and heart. So, yeah, you, you need the essentials of knowledge, including how we live together, not just learning the history of the wars that we happen to win. You know, I learned, I did Nazi Germany for GCSE A-level and my degree. So, but how do we live together between those conflicts? We need to learn, we need to understand how to coexist with our planet. And we need to learn the history of human ingenuity. You know, how did we go from... Cave paintings to driverless cars? And how can we marshal those same instincts for creativity and problem solving, tinkering with the world around us in the future? And then for the hand, we have to keep on learning because we'll have to adjust to so many different professions. My kids and grandkids will move through different crafts and different careers in a way that my generation didn't have to. Mm -hmm. We'll have to manage our mental and physical health. We'll have to develop what we call global competence, which means, you know, if I was to drop you Ben, in kind of singapore or bahrain or copenhagen would you have that awareness the ability to ask the right questions to understand the world around you the right kind of cultural antennae an interest in the world around you and then for the heart you know can we be kind curious and brave because to deal with this level of inequality we'll need to be much kinder this isn't a fluffy kindness it's a very practical muscular kindness we'll need to be much more Creative to manage the great crises ahead of us, and we'll have to be braver because, as I say, this really is the new normal and then I think there 's a final survival skill, which is one that has really struck me in you know two and a half decades now in diplomacy and and traveling around the world, but also at a stage of my life where i 'm thinking much more about how do I pass on the most important things from my parents and grandparents to to my kids, and that 's the importance of being a good ancestor
1: mm.
3: and that includes. You know, what must I forgive? What must I seek forgiveness for? How do I reshape the world around me to deal with inherited injustice, inherited inequality? How do I live a life shaped less by my CV, the things that people read out about you at the beginning of an interview or when you're applying for a job, and more shaped by my eulogy, the things that people would say about me at the end of my life? I think that's probably a reflection that many people go through at this sort of stage of life. But I think it's very much a survival skill as well, because the more that people live a life shaped by the eulogy shaped by that effort to be a good ancestor, the safer our world will be.
1: I just wanted to pick up on that whole idea of being a good ancestor. And I know this conversation really, and the book is framed as, you know, what skills can we foster within individuals? But I just think it's such an interesting, timely question in the UK context at the moment. Obviously, we've got a lot of conversations in universities, but also in wider society and in the media about the UK's history. And we're seeing that become present as well in the discourse of UK foreign policy. Liz Truss, the current UK Foreign Secretary, came to Chatham House in December and gave a speech where she basically said, you know, we have to stop being ashamed of our past. We need to be optimistic about what global Britain can offer to the world. And we need to not dwell on our imperial past or legacies that others think we should be ashamed of. I just wonder whether you think that particular skill about how we engage with our past, how would you sort of set about thinking about that at a sort of society or government level, not just on the level of the individual?
3: I mean, I think there's a need for a level of humility Hmm. uh, in the conversations we have about uh, our country for a couple of reasons. One, if my eldest kid comes and smashes up the train set of my younger kid, he can't then come downstairs and say, we just need to look forward now. You know, we're, we're into a post-train set era and we shouldn't dwell on the fact I broke your train set. You know, because the rest of the world is very aware of our history, good and bad. So we we can't pretend that that baggage isn't there. We can't we can't wish that away. Just as we can't and shouldn't be ashamed of, our, particularly our more recent national story. I was, you know, I wept through the London 2012 opening ceremony because there was a story about Britain there that I really felt we could be proud of. And I think a lot of British soft power is genuinely magnetic. The danger is at the moment that is when we frame everything through twentieth-century history. I mean, which as a result, as a result means that when Macron tries to reason with Putin, our media immediately, immediately look at Chamberlain and Munich as the only uh, metaphor that we have, the only comparison uh, we can make. But there's also a big mistake we make where we lose touch with the real strengths of our national brand. You know, cutting the aid budget would be a classic example of that for me or threatening to break international law. You know, those sorts of things which really undermine the wider story we tell the world about ourselves. So I'm amazingly, incredibly optimistic and positive about the role that UK can play in the world. And, you know, I like the idea of global Britain as well. I like the idea that we have a, a worldview shaped by actually having viewed the world and that we feel that we can go out there and promote positive change in the world. But we we have to do that with an element of humility as well as well as the confidence
1: okay so yeah i'd like to come back maybe to sort of how we drive some of these changes in institutions more broadly but coming back to how we actually develop these skills through education i wonder if you could say a bit about you know the changes how you see how our education is arranged at the moment our education system maybe in the uk but maybe also in other countries what is education getting wrong at the moment beyond just this kind of focus on knowledge is is that basically what we have to change or i mean i guess if you spoke to some teachers you know they'd be saying we want we're trying to make our kids curious we're trying yeah. to make our kids brave
3: and they are and um this isn't an anti teacher mm. book at all i think you know they're on the front line of trying to promote these skills often in the face of resistance from universities also in the face of resistance from parents often. And I say that as a parent of a 15 and a 10-year-old. And if you go to parent-teacher meetings, it's often parents who are insisting on more more focus on exams. The danger is that we're we're teaching kids skills and a way of thinking about the world that effectively will be automated in the next 10 years rather than teaching them what makes them different to the machines. We should be really focusing on what makes us human, and that's the the creativity, as as you say, the emotional intelligence and so on. Because... Only if we do that will we ensure the machines work for us and our kids don't work for the machines. I was very struck. I went out to Silicon Valley and visited the schools in which the kids of the tech titans are being educated. And they're learning these things. They're learning critical thinking. They're learning curiosity. They're learning teamwork. They're not learning in this sort of factory model that still dominates most of the world's education. So there's a real challenge there for us. And it's a real sliding doors moment because I Mm. think... You know, talking of the soft power of countries, countries that really master these sorts of skills, that really do reform their education in this 21st century way, will be the winners of the 21st century. And those that continue to basically manufacture robots will be the losers. And it's quite striking. You know, that work we did on global competence with the OECD, only two countries resisted cooperating with that, the effort to develop these sort of emotional intelligence, empathy, those sorts of skills. One was Trump's America and the other was England. And there's a real danger, I think. Education is such a vital part of the British brand.
1: Mm.
3: And I say that with great pride in, in what Oxford stands for, our university sector. But education more widely, you know, we have a, a legacy of a kite mark. If something is seen as, 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 education is seen as linked to Britain in some way, it's regarded as having a certain quality, yeah. certain prestige. And there's a real danger that we're complacent about that. And the other countries come racing past us and we carry on doing things in the same industrial way rather than making that adaptation.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. I mean, I think it makes a lot of sense, but it's also going to involve presumably some quite fundamental reforms, particularly in the UK context of, of the education system. And I just wonder, in the sort of short to medium term, as you say, it is kind of a race to see which countries are going to be able to capitalise on this Quickest, but in the short to medium term, you know we have we're we're still i mean hopefully tentatively emerging from the covid nineteen pandemic, and there are huge conversations on at the moment about what we need to prioritize as part of that recovery. we've got obviously health system reform is on the agenda increasingly with the Ukraine crisis. you've got countries across Europe and around the rest of the world saying we need to double down on defense spending. Do you think that education is at danger of kind of being squeezed out? from a government perspective in terms of how we balance the books and i mean if not how do you think we can sort of make the case better how do we make sure that education remains a kind of priority so that we can see this kind of change
3: i think it's a really important point you know i've just come from a fascinating kind of two-hour chatham house session on the state of the world and it's amazing that actually covid was only we only mentioned covid as a bit of an afterthought (laughs) because so much of the conversation was was caught up obviously with putin and uh and ukraine and so education moves even further down that list. What we've seen, and I witnessed this in in Downing Street, is it's harder and harder for governments in the West, in democracies like ours, to take a long-term perspective, to be strategic. And that means that not just that's a big challenge for foreign policy, and I saw that over Syria as we were playing poker, really, with Putin in, in 2013, 2014, over the red lines, but then especially so over something like education because there are no quick wins. You know, if you're a Western politician at the moment you know you're not going to be able to show that you know thanks to your extraordinarily far sighted reforms of education things are different you know the finns who have had most success in reforming their education system you know it's taken them two decades and it's been a cross party effort to get that right so i don't underestimate the the challenge increasingly my thesis is that that governments can't really drive the change that we need to see in in policy in general, let alone in in education, and that we need to put together these new, more creative coalitions between businesses that can see the need for new skills, parents who can understand the need to adjust, universities that are looking for a different kind of student, a different kind of skill set, international organisations who can also see the need to promote peace building and coexistence, who can see that the answer to the 21st century is not just to build a bigger wall around us, And educators, because it's educators who really do understand that need to adapt. And ultimately, I think the constituency that will really drive this change are the young people themselves, because they feel this sense of agency and activism, which my generation leaving university, I don't think, did feel in the same way. We were, you know, we observed the world through our... Instagram filter of 1989 that we thought things were all pretty much moving in our direction. And we might have sneered a bit at Francis Fukuyama in the end of history, but basically we were very shaped by that same idea that the world would look more like Sweden and less like North Korea. And if we've learned anything from the last five, six years, it's that we're really going to have to fight for that change. And I think young people get that.
1: But that, that draws me on quite nicely to another element of this conversation, which I just would love to hear your thoughts on, which is what about adults in this picture? Because you've been laying out the necessity, the sort of urgency with which we develop these skills to adapt to how the 21st century is, is changing. And thinking at the climate crisis, the whole conversation is up to 2030. We need mm. action right now. We've got the next sort of seven or eight years. We have to make fundamental changes. And I was thinking, you know, the kids that, are, I mean, I'm a governor at a primary school, locally and the kids that are being taught in that primary school at the moment maybe some of them will go on to be decision makers in the UK or beyond but they'll be decision makers in the second half of the 21st century by the time they get to that age and there's plenty that can go wrong in the meantime (laughs) so I suppose my question really is like how important is it that we learn how to teach old dogs new tricks (laughs) how do we deal with this problem of ongoing education once you've left school I guess
3: It's urgent. Uh, It really is urgent. You know, I was very struck during the COVID crisis and the the lockdowns by the inability of most leaders to actually communicate with empathy and compassion. You know, when you saw it happen, and I'd say Jacinda Ardern was a good example of this, it was very striking.
1: Mm.
3: You know, people who did have that emotional intelligence really stood out in that period. So, yeah, these 10 survival skills are not just for our kids and our grandkids. They're, they're, They're for us and our current leaders. You know, we are lacking these skills at the moment. And we don't have the luxury of waiting. I think some countries really get this. I was very struck. I was in Copenhagen recently, and, and giving a speech at the University of Copenhagen. And I expected the room to be full of students. And to me, that means full of 18 to 21 year olds. It was full of students, but they were people in their 70s, because everyone in, in Denmark is entitled to two weeks of education every year. Mm. I think it's vital that the universities stop thinking of themselves as places that are a sabbatical from life for three years and actually are about lifelong learning that stop posting about the number of people they reject and start thinking about creating access to knowledge, access to, to, to ideas. So this is a whole society challenge to effectively write ourselves a new curriculum that prepares us much better my generation, your generation, but the generation older than me as well, for this world in flux, because it's not going away.
1: We're we're coming towards the end now, Tom. Uh, Thanks so much for your time. But I just wanted to ask you a bit about the current prevailing crisis in Europe, at least, which is happening in Ukraine. We're speaking just two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine and are seeking fully-fledged regime change, it seems, and committing some pretty awful acts in the process. I just wonder, you know, as a proliferation of actors are trying to kind of mediate in this space and we're seeing t- so many different kind of diplomatic efforts and different institutions as well getting involved, not just national governments, what value do you think these skills that you're bringing in, in this book, what value do you think they're going to bring? How are we going to kind of leverage them to try and mitigate some of the, the harsher effects of this crisis?
3: Well, there's a kind of irony to to my books in that, so with the twenty, when I was bringing this soft back out of Naked Diplomat, it, about the way that social media is changing power and politics, in the background we had Brexit emerging, we had Donald Trump emerging, and mm. so on. So very soon, it became quite over, that conversation became quite overwhelming. We had a similar moment with this one. I was launching it in London a, a couple of weeks ago and I was talking about I was, you know, the whole idea was I was going to go and talk about soft power and how do we make our country more magnetic and so on. And of course on the screens in the background you've got this demonstration of the hardest kind of hard power. You've got Putin's tanks on the border ready to go and and hard power economic sanctions in response. It's a great reminder of the importance of all of that. And, of course, it's shaken us physically shaken us and and changed already. The tectonic plates are moving in ways that Putin could never have predicted around European coherence and European uh, defence spending. But, of course, part of the answer to that is also about soft power. It is about the magnetism of our model. You know, there's a reason why Ukraine is is coming in our direction and not in Russia's direction. And it's not just about the economy or about military power. But also we've seen in the success of Zelensky's response that there's an information war that can be won in this more enlightened, open, empathetic way. You know, you think that Putin's success in weaponizing the Internet would have meant that he'd have had it all his way Mm. in that space. And it hasn't been the case at all. The challenge, I think, for us, you know, I say this, we lit up the Hartford College Bridge yellow and blue at the weekend, and I'm proud we did that. But Putin's not sat there thinking, ah, you know, they've lit the College Bridge up, you know, I'll bring the guys home. You know, the challenge is there's always to balance those things out. You've got to retain the emphasis on the hard power. But I really reject this idea that we have to choose. Some of the commentary at the moment is saying, well... Putin is doing this because he knows we're weak, because we spend our lives talking about pronouns and human rights and climate change and so on. I just completely reject that. I think we can do we can do both. I think we must do both because our model is magnetic and attractive because of that focus on freedom and liberty, not despite it.
1: One of the things that I found particularly interesting in in the opening of this interview where you were sort of setting out the premise of the book was, You know, you were talking about this is a challenge which we need to get right because the people that get it right are going to get the most out of the 21st century and almost sort of framing it in this kind of geopolitical term. And obviously what we're seeing at the moment with the rise of China in particular, but also this kind of challenge to... American superiority on the global scene, people talking about multipolar worlds, all of these sorts of things. Increasingly, we're seeing different models of governance in contestation with each other for legitimacy and and other countries sort of following suit and maybe sort of trying to work out which one is going to deliver the best public services or whether it's going to deliver the best control, depending on (laughs) your view of these things. I just wondered, is it just a given for you that these... 10 survival skills are best delivered by liberal democratic countries? Or could you envisage a world where people that live in authoritarian societies without democracy can still develop these skills and, and potentially get the most out of them?
3: Many of us were reflecting during the pandemics about which model of government would prove best at handling them. You know, and there was a moment when the authoritarians seemed to have more tools in their box for responding to lockdowns and a pandemic than we did. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think overall the fact that we were able to have the open debate about how society should respond and the fact that we have the freedom, the academic freedom in our universities so that someone like Oxford could come up with the vaccine shows that ultimately there is a strength and a resilience to that model that we often take for granted. But with the survival skills, it's interesting. So, so some of these particularly around learning creativity, for example, I think you're seeing a number of countries and education systems really prioritise, and it's not just the democracies, the liberal democracies, that are seeing the need to do that. I think where we get an intersection between the spread of liberal democratic values and the promotion of these sorts of uh, of values is actually around tolerance and living together Mm. and the need to get away from this really corrosive sense of certainty that people so often have. In a brilliant book I read in an Emirati author called Omar Kabash Thing. I want you to be careful of people who tell you with unerring conviction how to think. <laughs> and he's right. I mean, that's the great danger at the moment. And we're getting it on social media the whole time. People are so certain of their opinions. And yet in reality, the best ideas, the best ingenuity, the coexistence thrives in that grey zone where it's okay not to be certain about the answers, where it's okay to mix cultures, to mix ideas, you know, where you get that kind of melting pot of, of creativity and ingenuity. That, for me, is where diplomacy thrives and where education thrives. And at the moment, that's more likely to thrive, I think, in, in liberal democracies. But we have, to, we have to work at that. We can't assume that, that we can take that for granted. We have to work to defend that space, to defend the, the grey zone where that curiosity actually um, flourishes.
1: And I suppose what we're seeing at the moment is that in order to defend that space, you have to do it with actions as well as rhetoric, I suppose.
3: Yeah, we can't be passive about this. But also it means we have to be much, much more assertive in developing these sorts of skills in ourselves Mm -hmm. and in young people. Incidentally, I'd include in that, and and if I could spend two years now just working on one area of diplomacy and, and, and public affairs, it would be around this issue of healing the wounds of history now, are there ways in which we can combine the reach we have with social media plus a sense of collective psychology, almost nation therapy and diplomacy to, to help us to reframe the stories we tell ourselves about the past? You think about Israel and Palestine or Northern Ireland or Britain in a way that we're trying to deal with our own conflicted past, even our own recent conflicts over Brexit. Are there ways now to have a national conversation around those sorts of issues that we couldn't have in the past. I think there are, but in a way, those have to be society-led. And it comes back to your question about institutions, in a way, because the world that I come from is a world of maps and chaps, of top-down hierarchical structures, of authority. And it's very, very clear from the last 10 years that, take back control, people don't want to listen to that sort of hierarchy in the same way. We have less trust. The agency of the smartphone takes away our respect for that sort of hierarchy it's a brilliant book called new power by jeremy Hyman's and henry Timms that says the world is much less like tetris the blocks come down and we know the order they'll fall in and much more like minecraft we don't quite know what it will look like power moves sideways not up and down and we have to adjust to that world and that ultimately means that individuals themselves will have to take much more responsibility for their own education and for the reforms of society in geopolitics that we need, and not wait for governments and hierarchy to, to fix these problems for
1: us. Tom Fletcher, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Ben.
0: So I think that's it for this episode. If you enjoyed my interview with Marissa, there will be some links in the show notes for her work and the article in the World Today magazine.
1: And if you enjoyed listening to this episode, as I always say, please do Like or subscribe or leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this. It really makes a huge difference to other people in terms of helping them find undercurrents. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new episode for you. It should be really interesting. In the meantime, if you want to keep up with Chatham House's work on all aspects of international relations from the crisis in Ukraine through to the climate crisis, then Please do check out our website at www.chathamhouse.org or follow us on Twitter at Chatham House. Mariana, it's been lovely to be back in the media studio <laughs> with you today. Thank you very much for yeah partnering on this episode and uh, yeah, see you again soon.
0: See you soon and thank you so much for listening.